This week we're continuing on in John's Gospel, and we're at the last part of chapter 1. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking uh, in the lead-up to Christmas. We we started at John chapter 1, verse 1, and we've been making our way through. And today we come to the end of chapter 1, this final section in the first chapter, introducing Jesus, introducing John's Gospel, introducing some things that we'll see unfolded throughout the rest of this document. And today, John's gospel invites us to consider the importance we place on our eyes. You know, every day, we are bombarded by images. We use our eyes. We we perceive things. We see things. We make judgments using our eyesight. Just a few weeks ago, I had a contractor come over to my place and do some work. And then after he was done, he said, this is the amount, you know, for my services. Uh, Can you please bank transfer me? And so I got my phone out and, and... you know, did the transaction, and he said, can I see the receipt, please? Perfectly reasonable, isn't it? So I held it up, he saw it, and went, okay, and then he left. He saw and made a judgment. We do that every day, from our interactions to people and checking our phones, to things like, well, have you seen that movie yet? Oh, no, actually, I haven't, so I don't know what I think about it. Or, oh, what do you think about that, that, that new politician? Oh, We'll wait and see. Every single one of us uses our eyes to make judgments, understandably. And so we run into a problem then when it comes to the Christian faith. Because the Christian faith claims to follow a living Jesus, not just adopt his teachings from 2,000 years ago. No, the Christian faith claims right now to have a living trust in a living Jesus. But how is that meant to work if we've never seen him with our eyes here in the 21st century? Someone who was born over 2,000 years ago, how can we do this? Well, this evening, I want to ask this question. How can we follow Jesus when we can't see him? And you might be here this evening, and someone who sees Christianity as a bit of a historical curiosity, interesting, intellectually stimulating, but following Jesus, that's superstition. I only follow, I only do things based on what I can see, what I can judge for myself, what I can verify with my own two eyes. And even for the Christian, this can be a source of doubt. In such a highly visual world, where there is a a premium paid on you seeing the evidence for yourself, is it no wonder that Christians can, can end up doubting, do these prayers mean anything? Is this book even, even trustworthy? Is this just a big social club with no substance whatsoever? Can you see how this question, how can we follow Jesus when we can't see him, it's far from being irrelevant or trite or boring, especially if we're trying to be intellectually honest and quite literally avoid a blind faith. Well, I think that today's passage has some answers for us, two in fact, not everything, but two answers as well as a forward-looking outlook. And so would you come with me then as we dive into John chapter 1, and the first answer we see is in verses 35 to 42, and it's this. Hear from those who saw him. Hear from those who saw him. Uh, Last week, uh, we saw John the Baptist baptize Jesus, and we're back here with John the Baptist. Uh, Last week in verse 34, after John the Baptist had baptized Jesus, he said this. He said, I have seen and testify that this is God's chosen one. 
Having baptized Jesus, John the Baptist gets an amazing revelation. This is God's chosen one. This is the one that God has been pointing everything to. This is the one that John wants others to look to, including his two disciples here. In verse 36, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. As Jesus walks by, John sees Jesus and he says, Look, pay attention, turn your focus on him. And then, what happens? Well, the disciples end up following. Notice what verse 37 doesn't say. Verse 37 doesn't say, when the two disciples heard this, they saw him and then followed him. Verse 37 also doesn't say, when the two disciples heard this, they turned, made a judgment, and then determined, yes, they wanted to follow him. No, verse 37 says, they heard John's words and followed Jesus. Now, obviously, to follow Jesus would have involved your eyesight. After all, they would have had to see him to know what direction he was heading. But the text, John the Gospel writer, specifically links hearing to following, something that will come up again in just a moment. Now, I think this is significant, because what it shows us is that these two disciples were eagerly anticipating the Lamb of God, eagerly anticipating a way for their sins to be taken away, eagerly anticipating the Messiah of Israel. But it also shows that they they trust the words of their teacher, John. They were willing to listen to him. Given how fast they they were willing to leave John the Baptist and follow Jesus, they trusted him. And in verse 38, Jesus sees them following and speaks for the first time in John's gospel, what do you Literally, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? And in response, they call him rabbi, meaning teacher, and ask where he will be staying, meaning that they want to stay with him. They want to follow him. They want to listen to him. Can you imagine these two disciples? We only know the name of one of them, Andrew, longing for the Messiah. Finally, he's here. We can enjoy his presence. We can hear him teach. It's only four in the afternoon. We've got all day. The excitement they would have felt. But notice where it started. It started from hearing John the Baptist's words. John the Baptist, who had seen Jesus, and then they followed him. John, the author of this gospel, draws attention to this again in verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. Again, hearing and following. The two disciples are those who heard what John the Baptist said and followed Jesus. And in verse 41, one of these disciples, Andrew, goes and finds his brother, Simon Peter, and tells him, we have found the Messiah. Andrew has now himself become someone who's seen Jesus knows Jesus, and so he goes and tells Simon Peter, his brother. Now notice, we don't get any words from Simon Peter. We don't don't hear any retorts. John, the gospel writer, is, is portraying Simon Peter as someone who came along immediately. In the span of one verse, he's come into Jesus's presence, and Jesus sees him, 
he gives him a new name. Here's the point. Verses 35 to 42 give us a picture of what the start of discipleship looks like in John's gospel. People hearing from ones who saw Jesus, not seeing, them, not, not seeing Jesus himself yet, themselves yet, but, but others have seen Jesus and then they tell others. And then that is what starts the journey before they follow him, be it immediately, be it as they come and see Jesus themselves. Being compelled by what they hear, even though they haven't perceived it with their own eyes yet. But these verses also give us a picture of what the start of discipleship looks like for us today, because none of us here can see Jesus directly with our own eyes. Jesus is raised and alive right now, seated in the heavenly realms to one day return and usher in the new creation. We can't see him yet. We don't have access to that anymore. The world has not had access to that for at least 1,993 years. But we do have the testimony of those who saw Jesus here in God's Word, the Bible. To hear from the testimony of its human authors, to listen, that's how we can follow Jesus, whom we have not seen. But at this point, it's worth asking, why? I mean, if, if the God of the Bible, if the God of Israel, if the God of the world and the universe is so wise, why did he set things up this way? I mean, we live in a world of YouTube and TikTok and global journalism. Why, in God's infinite wisdom, didn't he send Jesus here in the 21st century, where we could travel globally, where we could film video, where we could get documentary evidence, where we could see Jesus, record him, wouldn't more people come and believe him then? I mean, God, if you're so wise, why did you put it all the way back then, when we don't even have video, where we can't see it with our own eyes? And yet, if you think about it, yes, we do live in a world of global journalism, and YouTube, and TikTok, phones everywhere, able to take a video in a moment's notice. And think about how much misinformation we have in the world. How many doubts we have over facts. How, how people can, can see the same experiment or a set of scientific findings and, and, and allege conspiracy theories around it. Where the same people can see events unfold and come up with alternative explanations. Where videos can be released and you don't know whether it's real or a deep fake. Do you really think that in an age of video, if Jesus really was around today, that more people would trust him? John's gospel goes on to tell us many, many stories of people who see Jesus and yet do not believe Jesus. John's gospel, let me be clear here, John's gospel doesn't downplay the value of seeing things for yourself. In next week's passage, we're going to see that God did want people to see something of Jesus' majesty and glory. It is not wrong in John's gospel. It's not wrong in the Christian life to see and believe. But here's the thing. In John's gospel, the differentiating factor isn't whether you see. It's how you respond to what you hear. That is what distinguishes the true and the false disciples. 
In fact, we will see many who see and believe, but there are many more who see and do not believe. For you and me, here in the 21st century, we are called to do what we are called to do, what we are called, invited to do, in fact, is to hear and receive. That's what we see here in verses 35 to 42. Which brings us to verses 43 to 50. And here we see that we should believe the one who sees you. Believe the one who sees you. Here in verse 43, we've come to the next day. And in verse 43, Jesus finds Philip and says, follow me. Once again, for a character, we don't hear his initial words to this response, but presumably John, the gospel writer, is showing us that Philip immediately follows. But we also get a hint of that because of Philip's immediate response afterwards, because he goes and finds Nathanael. Notice in verse 45, he goes to his friend Nathanael. You can almost hear him exclaiming, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He's here. Philip, presumably, just like Andrew, the other disciple, Simon Peter, had been waiting, longing for this Messiah prophesied beforehand in the Old Testament Scriptures. But unlike Philip, unlike Simon Peter, unlike the other two disciples, Nathaniel, well, we have a difference in response, don't we? Because Nathaniel doesn't take these words and accept them immediately. In fact, he questions them, ridicules them. You can almost hear him laughing in ridicule in verse 46 when he says, Nazareth? <laughs> what kind of a plate? Can anything good come from there? He mocks Jesus' hometown, a place that was known for being small and insignificant. Surely God's chosen one, the Messiah of Israel, couldn't come from there. And so for the first time in this narrative, we see a character's initial attempt to tell others of what they've seen fail. And so verse 46, Philip tells Nathanael to come see for himself. You don't believe me? Come and see with your own eyes. Now, we might be led to think that Nathaniel is demonstrating ungodly unbelief, and that when he comes to Jesus, he's going to get a harsh rebuke. But that's not what happens. Verse 47, we get an insight into Jesus' warm and comforting heart. Because when Jesus sees Nathaniel approaching, he says to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Jesus' point is that Nathanael is a moral and upright Israelite, someone who had received the law and the prophets, who was looking forward to the Messiah, and who wanted to pursue the evidence. He's not trying to be shady. He's not trying to, to, to worm his way out of the truth. No, no, he's just trying to be convinced. He is struggling to see the truth, whether this is real or not. If anything, Jesus is commending Nathaniel because God doesn't ask us to just accept things without investigation if we are struggling with it, especially when we genuinely do have doubts. Rather, God invites us to, to, to reason with him, 
in dialogue, to wrestle with him and contend with him in a struggle, just like, just like Jacob did in, in the book of Genesis. Some of us will know here that Jacob in the book of Genesis has a struggle with God and he's later renamed Israel. The name Israel means struggles with God or contends with God. And so when Jesus here, well, notice what Jesus said. Jesus says Nathanael is truly an Israelite in the truest sense of the name, contending for the truth, wanting to, to, to achieve and to come to the truth and follow it. It is a blessed thing to hear the words of Jesus and listen and follow and believe. But it is also acceptable to contend, struggle, and strive for the truth. And know this, Jesus welcomes the struggler with open arms and invites them to come contend with him. Well, Nathaniel stands confused. Verse 48, how do you know me? Nathanael asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? In almost no time at all, Nathanael goes from a valid, honest skeptic to complete devotional believer. And what happens here? I mean, why? Why, why this change? We well, see Jesus demonstrates a supernatural insight into Nathanael. Something about him being under a fig tree before, before Philip came to him. And this display of knowledge about Nathaniel's past actions, his, his past existence, something that happened, it jolts him. It, it arouses something in his heart, changing him immediately. Enough to call Jesus a flurry of titles, Rabbi, Son of God, King of Israel. Now, while preparing this week for this sermon, I, I spent a bit of time trying to work out whether John the Gospel writer gives us any insight into what on earth was Nathaniel doing under the fig tree? But after a while, I realized something. John the Gospel writer tells us exactly what Jesus saw under the fig tree. And it's there in verse 48. He saw Nathaniel. You see, it doesn't matter for me or you or anyone else what it was that Nathaniel was doing. What matters to John the Gospel writer, what matters to Nathaniel, what matters to Jesus is that Jesus saw this man. He saw him and he knew him. Friends, Jesus saw Nathaniel just like how for us, he sees us and our lives, our highs and our lows. our bright times and our darkest valleys, our pain and suffering, our guilt and shame. And he still says, come. Jesus saw Nathaniel, and he still tenderly welcomed him. That should compel us, just like it compelled Nathaniel, like nothing and no one else can. 
You see, in the end, it was what Jesus told Nathanael and him hearing it and believing it that made all the difference in the world. Not some miraculous sign that Jesus did. Nathanael didn't see some, you know, laser ray going back in the cosmic time and then, no, no, he heard it and he believed it. You know, this one, this Jesus of Nazareth, who Nathaniel and Philip and, and Simon Peter and Andrew and the other disciple believe in, they hear, they believe. But it doesn't end there. Because Jesus assures them of something that they who believe will experience. And that brings us to our last point, point three. Point three, know that your belief will turn into sight. From verses 19 to 50 of John chapter 1, we actually see six different titles for Jesus. Um, Six different titles. Six as a number is pretty significant because we know that in the Jewish culture, seven is God's number. What are these six titles? Well, we see Jesus of Nazareth called God's chosen one, Lamb of God, Rabbi, Messiah, Son of God, and King of Israel. Where's the seventh? Seven is an incredibly important number throughout John's gospel. And here in John chapter one, the narrative, John the writer, is getting us to go, the story isn't finished yet. Where's the seventh title? And we get it in verses 50 to 51. Have a look. Jesus said, you, speaking to Nathaniel, you believe because I told you, I saw you under the fig tree you will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In verse 50, Jesus speaks to Nathanael, but then in verse 51, I think he also turns to speak to the rest of the disciples as we round out this introductory chapter. Because what he tells them really gives us an insight into the rest of the narrative of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And notice what he says to them. He says that they will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This language of angels ascending and descending is a direct reference to to Genesis chapter 28, a passage where Jacob, the one who was later renamed Israel, He has a dream, and in the dream, he sees a stairway, a stairway to heaven. And in this stairway, there's angels ascending and descending. And what does this stairway represent? Well, it represents an access point, an access point between earth and heaven, the dwelling place of God, a way for God's angels, the sources of God's protection and power and goodness to access earth and presumably Jacob. Well, here in verse 51, Jesus references this stairway, except he tells the disciples that this access point won't come through a stairway. Rather, this access point will come through him, the Son of Man. In essence, what Jesus is telling us with this seventh title, with this reference to Genesis chapter 28, is that he is the access point between heaven and earth. He is the way to receive God's power and help and protection. 
He is the way to access the dwelling place of God itself. In a real sense, Jesus is the dwelling place of God. You want to find God? You want to seek God? Come to him, the Son of Man. This is what Jesus promised his disciples, that they would see him. Yes, you see me now, but you will see something greater. Yes, you have responded by hearing and believing, but you will see something better. Your, your belief will turn to sight. And that unfolds throughout the rest of John's gospel as Jesus manifests his glory again and again and again. Their belief becomes even, even more clearly, visibly vindicated with ups and downs along the way. But ultimately, it unfolds through his death and resurrection, whom these disciples saw themselves and have shared it with us. In our day, people who are seeking to follow Jesus here in the 21st century, the same promise is given to us. For this Son of Man, this Jesus, is our access point to heaven itself, to the dwelling place of God, to receive his power and protection and blessing and help. Right now, if we hear and believe the words about him from those who saw him recorded in the Bible, this Jesus promises that right now, spiritually, we have access to God himself, a real relationship that is but a taste of heaven. But one day, our belief will turn into physical sight. We will see the Son of Man visibly, with unveiled eyes when Jesus returns. For all to see, our belief will turn to sight. We're just waiting. It was true for the disciples in John's gospel at that point in Jesus' life. And it's true for us now. Hear, believe, and you will see. Right now spiritually, but eventually, clearly, visibly, physically. That's how you can follow Jesus, even though you can't see him. Isn't that magnificent? Isn't that amazing? As we come to a close, I want to turn here. Brothers and sisters, are any of you tonight doubting your faith? Questioning. Part of the answer this evening might be to come back and open up your ears again to hear, to listen. I want to say this as gently as I can. I'm not here to disparage anyone who, who has struggles because of work schedules or logistical matters or sickness, but is it any wonder that in such a, a visual world that we struggle to follow someone who we can't see? And is it any wonder that, that if, you, if you don't seek to put yourself in the realm where you can actually hear the words about Jesus, that you will doubt? This evening, would you resolve this year 
to come back to seeking to listen. Now, last week, Matt talked a bit about reading. Reading is good, but I want to talk about hearing, listening. You could do that through an audio Bible. But, but might it be seeking to be more regular at church or, or watching the YouTube video later in the week if you can't make it? Might it be joining a community group and actually coming? Might it be seeking to, to intentionally engage with friends and family, to speak God's word to one another and to hear God's word from one another more? Might it be praying individually or together that you would not just have ears to hear but hearts to believe God's word? Eagerly seek to be a hearer, believer, and follower. But the last thing I want to invite you to as well, if you are doubting, is to genuinely seek to contend for the truth. Struggle. Jesus will not push you back. The moment you stop struggling, the moment you stop striving, is the moment that you will drift away. Jesus sees you, he knows you, he wants you, and he promises that one day your belief will be turned to sight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your glorious Son, who he is, and how you revealed him to so many witnesses that we can have assurance and follow him. Wherever we are this evening, Lord, we do ask that you would embolden us and strengthen us, perhaps even grow faith in us for the first time, to follow this glorious chosen one, your Lamb, the one who has saved us and is the stairway to heaven. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.